Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Tuesday, January 5th, 2020, from Slate, it's The Gist, I'm Mike Pesca, and on to the most compelling story so far of 2021. The president rejecting the results of the election and talking about it on the phone a lot. No, that's not it. The races to determine the fate of the Senate. Not bad, but we're talking most compelling, by which I speak of Bean Dad. When we last left Bean Dad, the musician and podcaster John Roderick, he had been hounded off the internet due to his tweets about making his 11-year-old figure out how to open a can of beans by herself. Well, not hounded, Bean Dad admits. He shamefully caved. He needed to face the music. In an apology on his website, Bean Dad writes, quote, I deactivated my Twitter yesterday in a panic. He went on to say, my story about my daughter and the can of beans was poorly told. I didn't share how much laughing we were doing, how we had a bowl of pistachios between us all day as we worked out the problem, or that we'd both had a full breakfast together a few hours before. In other words, he didn't leaven it with some hand-holding to tell people, it's okay, it might have seemed serious, there might have been tension at the time in my conveyance. And yes, tension is a form of drama, but what I really needed to do is assure the audience that a nine-year-old didn't have to go six hours between meals. He went on to add, I framed the story with me as the asshole dad because it's my comedic persona and my fans and friends know it's a bit. Well, not just his friends or fans because of the screenshots I saw, just a snapshot in time, but the tweets were getting a lot of love. Here, first one said, so yesterday my daughter nine was hungry and I was doing a jigsaw puzzle. So I said over my shoulder, make some baked beans. She said, how? Like all kids do when they want you to do it. So I said, open a can and put it in the pot. She brought me the can and said, open it how? With a can opener, I said, incredulous. She brought me the can opener and we both stared at it. I realized I'd never taught her to use it. Most cans now have pull tops. I felt like a dope. What kind of apocalypse father doesn't teach his kid how to use a manual can opener? All right, those are the first two posts I read. And from the screenshot, I saw that second one had 98 comments and 1.7 thousand likes. You know, ratio, getting ratioed online, it's, it's when there are more comments than likes. And supposedly this means that people are calling you out. You're getting your comeuppance. Clearly it wasn't the case with Bean Dad. His intended audience seemed to like this story. Ratio is really meaningless, by the way, because some quotes are questions, a call for engagement, so they're going to get more comments. And some in-groups will like others' really horrendous tweets. I was looking at a lot of QAnon-type tweets assailing a blameless Georgia election worker. Hundreds of people like those. They were barely commented upon. So Bean Dad was first rewarded for his story as... As I read it, I think he should have been. There were delightful little grace notes. Quote, I told her stories about some of the great cans I'd opened over the years. She rolled her eyes. 
We talked about industrial design and what a funny little device the opener is. And the tone really gets no crueler than that. There is some tough love, but also a lot of love love. Quote, I've been tempted many times along the way to guide her hand. I wanted her to experience the magnificence of the can opener so much I couldn't stand the suspense. Neither of us likes baked beans that much. The cupboards are bare. So it seemed like a paltry reward for this work. It's a nice story. It uses Twitter well. But Bean Dad was assailed and Ken Jennings got involved and the podcast My Brother, My Brother and Me dropped Bean Dad's music as their theme song. All right. And so now Bean Dad apologizes, writing, I've conjured an abusive parent that many people recognize from real life. I am deeply sorry for having precipitated more hurt in the world, for having prolonged or exacerbated it by fighting back and being flippant when confronted, and for taking my Twitter feed offline yesterday instead of facing the music. I wish the parents I modeled didn't exist. I wish no one had to grow up with a parent who tortured them physically or emotionally. I would never intentionally make light of those experiences, and I'll never underestimate again the pain I cause with some poorly chosen words and by acting defensively when challenged. Hey, who am I to tell a person you shouldn't be sorry for hurting someone else's feelings? You should be sorry for hurting someone's feelings as a general rule. And there was also some older content dredged up in the Bean Dad deep dive, some ironic racism that Bean Dad should absolutely apologize for, and some ironic anti-Semitism that I say meh about. I was put off, though, by the entire tone, how it was a seemingly forced confession, a public square rending of garments nature to it. In fact, I hated that it needed to be done, but I guess Bean Dad thought it did. He wanted his career, or at least his Twitter feedback. I object to the abject nature of it, but that's how he thinks he's going to get on with his life. I did think that this was an example where we have all hurt ourselves by so demonizing the conditional apology, the if you were offended or to anyone I may have offended. We treat that now as ipso facto insincere because often in the past it has been, but now you can't even try it because it will, without exception, be interpreted as adding further insult to the original wrong. And Bean Dad knows you can't do that, so he didn't try to do that, or else it would have undermined all his efforts. But I say this is exactly the case where you might wish to say, if my exaggerated character of the gruff dad reminded you of your actually hurtful father, well, to those in that camp, I really am sorry about that. And I think that would have been a sincere apology, but it could have been a conditional apology, which no longer exists. Those have been defined as non-apologies. I don't want to be overly dramatic about any of this in stating that huge parts of our society are now subject to the victim's veto, but it does seem more true than it ever has been before. I mean, it's a pendulum. I guess it needed to swing a bit. It swung quite a bit more than I'm comfortable with, than I think art should be comfortable with, or even self-expression. I mean, these little wounded grievance sparrows huddled together, alert to any sign of predators. They're not even fully birthed. I think of them as hatchlings in a spotty incubator, blinking on and off. They must be attended to at all costs. Again, it is not the death knell of a once robust culture. We will survive. I can't say right now, however, we're thriving. On the show today, now that I'm done with Twitter threads, on to Newspaper Needles. It's back. And now, 
remembrances of things Trump. It's not just Trump who made Trump Trump. It's, as two great observers of failed presidencies once said, all the president's men. Well, the president's men, who were said to be at the heart of the Nixon scandal, were Ivy League educated, military veterans, well-qualified political operatives, or in most cases, all three of those things. All President Trump's men, I could have picked any number of examples, but let's just remember three. First, there was this guy. Uh, Your Chiron talked about a crisis. Your reporter talked about a bunker mentality. I actually work in the West Wing. I work in the White House. It is absolutely nothing of the kind. Uh, We are pushing the Make America Great Again agenda. The president is a steam locomotive that will not be stopped. It's just fake news. Sebastian Gorka was a White House advisor for the first eight months of the administration. He went on to host a radio program on the Salem Network. He prefers to be called Professor Gorka, though American academics who have reviewed his credentials from a Hungarian university describe them as not up to American or mostly Western standards. Gorka was arrested once on handgun charges, and during the entirety of his tenure, it's been reported that he had an arrest warrant out for him also on handgun charges. Then there was this guy. Roger is the last victim of the Russia hoax. The last. And we know now that the Russia hoax, the Russia investigations, the accusations of Trump campaign uh, conspiring with the Kremlin in order to defeat Hillary Clinton, that canard. That's Michael Caputo. Caputo hosted a show on a Buffalo radio station for years, then a podcast. In April of 2020, he was appointed Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, where he attempted to intimidate officials into suppressing negative news about COVID. Six months later, he took medical leave after ranting on Facebook about hit squads and predicting that he would be killed by his enemies. Two days after he left, the department reversed their medically unsound advice that asymptomatic people who have been in close contact with coronavirus carriers don't need to receive testing. And finally, let us remember Stephen Miller. The end result of this, though, is that our opponents, the media, and the whole world will soon see, as we begin to take further actions, that the powers of the president to protect our country are very substantial and will not be questioned. Miller in high school once jumped onto the track during a girls' relay race to show that he was faster than the female athletes. He went on to serve as an aide to Jeff Sessions, is credited as the rhetorical and actual architect of the Trump administration's immigration policy, and has worked in the Trump White House for all four years. And this has been Remembrances of Things Trump. David Shore is back to talk about elections, specifically electing Democrats, and what he has learned from studying voters, politicians, and his fellow campaigning experts. here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. 
cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. David Shore is a data analyst, a synthesizer of information. He helps Democratic candidates get elected. David is 28 years old now. He's been at this for a while. He worked for the Obama campaign when he was 20. And as an 18-year-old, he developed a Bayesian get-out-the-vote system that created probabilistic partnership estimates for every registered voter in one Montana state Senate district. And his candidate wound up winning by two votes, unseating the incumbent Republican. So you want to think of the guy as a prodigy? Think of him as a prodigy. You might get embarrassed, but it's true. But I was interested in asking a data prodigy, what's the role of emotional growth? The intellect might be extremely advanced, but are there things that only an older person can truly understand because of emotional development? I'm definitely a lot more, you know, mature. I think, I mean, I'm not claiming I'm mature now, but I think I'm, you know, more mature than I was, you know, two years ago or four years ago, or definitely 10 years ago. Um, you know, it's a funny thing just because, you know, when I was at Civis, you know, I, I, I left Civis recently, but, you know, I started working with all of them when I was 20 years old and, you know, uh, people, people change a lot in eight years. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's, that's, typical, uh, probably of, you know, most, most men in their twenties, uh, you know, they start off very immature and they end up maybe only somewhat immature. Right. Was there any, is there anything though, where you would say, you know, I wouldn't make that point, not because of an intellectual reason. And I'm not, I really am not trying to subtweet anything, oh, yeah. but just anything in your life where you're like, you know, I, I think that's sound enough, but I wouldn't say it that way, not for an intellectual reason, but for what I've either learned or how I've grown emotionally, uh, how I've matured. You know, you know, in terms of the style of how I say things, like it's taken me some time to appreciate, you know, that how you say things and what words you use is you know, actually very important, you know, there's a, there are trade-offs between clarity uh, and grabbing attention versus, you know, respecting other people. And I'm not claiming I always get that right, but it's definitely something I've like changed on. I've moved, you know, I've, I've tried to move more toward being respectful, but then I think the other piece is just, and this is something, you know, I, I, I've talked about before is just that, you know, when I was 20 and working in the Obama campaign, there were all of these disagreements between like the data people and like kind of these grizzled old school consultants and, you know, stuff like the value of television advertising or the value of yard signs or, you know, various tactical messaging decisions. And, you know, I think when I look back, probably about 80% of the things where I thought I was right and they were wrong, I think they were probably right in retrospect, you know, just with the maturity of being able to look, appreciate, you know, how complex these problems are and how, you know, the ways in which I was boiling down and them into numbers were, wasn't sufficiently complex. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think that's, that's something I've, you know, grappled with over the last, you know, 10 years, realizing the world is a little, a little more complicated than I thought. Okay. But like with yard signs, you had data, the data didn't show they were working. Why would you be wrong? Cause an old guy says, I just feel they work. <laughs> or this is the way I've always done it. <laughs> it's a more subtle point than that. And I, th I think this is, you know, one of the big problems in political analytics. And I think this is one of the big mistakes that the Obama people made was that in the old days, 
there were all kinds of things that politicians used to do. They'd give speeches, there'd be sound trucks, they'd put up yard signs, they'd like send a goat to the county fair. Uh, you know, also they would knock doors or they'd send mail or, you know, whatever. The thing that differentiates knocking doors or sending a piece of mail relative to sending someone to the county fair or putting up a yard sign is it's very easy to test knocking on someone's door. It's very easy to set up that experiment. You know, who votes and who doesn't vote is a matter of public record. So you knock on 100,000 doors, you uh, don't knock on 100,000 doors, you see how many of them vote afterward. So as a result, over the course of the 2000s, a lot of experimental evidence started to accumulate on like canvassing and mail. And so we started learning how to, you know, building out all of these models to optimize, you know, who we should send mail to or who we should uh, fundraise to. And, you know, just to tell a quick story, you know, I, I remember my first day in the Obama campaign, I'm uh, talking to Dan Wagner, who's head of analytics, and, you know, he, he goes and he says, you know, campaigns are fundamentally about lists. You have lists of people to persuade and lists of people to volunteer and lists of people to raise money from and, you know, lists of people to get out the vote. And your job as a math person is to just sort those lists as well as you can. And then I like went and I like tried to sort the lists. And, you know, the problem is like stepping back. That's crazy. <laughs> that's clearly not what winning <laughs> campaigns are about. And, you know, that's not blaming him. Um, you know, I believed it too. But I think that if you come in with this mi with a data mindset, it's really easy to focus on things that are really easy to measure and to really neglect things that are harder to measure. You know, I think stepping back, you know, I mean, I, just to talk about yard signs, because it was so easy to measure door knocks, uh, we really started incentivizing field organizers based on how many door knocks they put in this like centralized, you know, CRM called the van. And then, you know, people actually started to say, there was this mantra that the organizers would say, oh, yard signs don't vote, yard signs don't vote, because they would get really annoyed because they were getting judged on how many door knocks they were, they, they were getting their people to do. And these volunteers would come in and just want yard signs and not want to knock on doors. And it turns out that finally, we got to a point where we could test yard signs. It's a very hard thing to test. You know, you have, you have to put yard signs in some precincts and not in others. And you have to like pay people to pull out yard yeah. signs and whatever. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still, it's still a little bit of an open question, but all signs. Yeah. And the signs I, themselves might, the signs themselves might be terrible. So you're not even testing optimal yard signs. <laughs> right. But, you know, there's, there's an academic, he did, he did this across three different races. And so far, all the evidence we have shows that yard signs are actually on a per cost basis, uh, a lot more effective than canvassing. And we just, it was very hard to test. We didn't know that. And therefore we decided it didn't matter. Meanwhile, all the consultants were like, no, yard signs are very important. And, uh, and so the point there is just, you know, we shouldn't dismiss, you know, kind of the wisdom of these elders, you know, one, because they're older and they have wisdom, but I actually think it's, there's a different, more subtle reason. It used to be that there was way more ticket splitting, you know, just to put numbers on this, you know, in 2012, the correlation between Senate vote and presidential vote was like, 0.71 and now it's 0.954. And if you go back to the 1980s or the 1990s, I mean, it was crazy. There were there were races where literally a majority of people split their ticket, you know, like Joe Biden, for example, who I think has a lot of good political instincts. You know, in 1984, a literal majority, I think, of people in Delaware voted for both Joe Biden and for Ronald Reagan. These people who were around back then got to observe this like different world where effects were really big and you didn't need fancy math to see what would happen. And, and that's why I, you know, I think it's important, you know, study the era and listen to people. It's not just that, you know, people get, you know, have this wisdom as they age. It's that the world used to be different and they were around back then. And it means they have a little, a little more data. And it took me some time to appreciate that. That's interesting because the question was about what do you think you learned based on emotional maturity is in, instead of intellectual maturity. And I could listen to your answer and I took it all in, but 
in the end, it was the intellectual evidence, the empirical evidence about yard sign working that either convinced you you were right or made you change your mind. Well, you know, I, I think that now we have the data. The field is advanced and it's, and so we can answer some questions that we couldn't clearly answer before. But I think the answer, you know, the reason why I was wrong before was I, w- I had a situation where there wasn't really much data. Um, and my prior was that these things did nothing. And these older people had this prior that these things were very important. To be clear, I wasn't in charge, thank God. Um, but, you know, I, I thought these pointy-headed bosses, what do they know? They don't even know any math, you know? And the answer, which I was too immature to appreciate, was that they really did know something I didn't because they were around. Yeah, and they didn't even know why they knew it, and it has something to do with, maybe the maturity part of it is humility about the nature of priors for each part of that interaction. That's right. I raised the case, their case in my language, and they wouldn't be able to express that. But I think it's just important to have humility to realize, you know, it's, it's actually very hard, you know, to become Obama's senior advisor. Uh, you really have to be a pretty smart guy and even, even or, or, or woman. And, and so even if you don't know, even if you can't speak like an academic or even if you don't know math, like you probably have a lot of insight. And this is just something I've really come to grapple with where, you know, while I was at Civis and now, you know, we work with a lot of principals you know, people who are in charge of super PACs, you know, elected officials, and they generally don't have a background in social science. They generally don't have a background in, you know, quantitative research. My, my experience is that they're all generally very smart people and uh, ignoring what they say or ignoring their reactions is like a bad idea. And it's really something you should do at your peril. And so I think, you know, just some humility of, of realizing that other people can really be quite smart. So someone will hear what you said and say, and interpret it as, oh, it's kind of a shot against technocrats, or at least it's uh, bolstering up wise people who aren't technocrats. But I hear you're saying something about the nature of being on the vanguard. And anyone who is of the vanguard, usually young people come in brimming with ideas. They not only think that in these specific ways that we could really prove we're right and they're wrong, they think in general, the old way of thinking must be wrong, full stop. Everything about it must be wrong or so much about it must be wrong. There's, you know, a clickishness or there's a cultural aspect to being on the vanguard where you denigrate people who've been in those positions for a long time. It's just natural. It's just human nature. You tell your, uh, yourself a story that we're us and they're them. But again, maybe humility should be the order of the day. There's uh, something I like to say is that, you know, there's this process where people turn 21 or 22 and they leave university and they look around at the world and they go, ah, the world is really messed up. I want to make things better. And I think the important thing to realize is just that people have been doing this smart, brilliant people, a lot lot of whom are very ideologically motivated, who care a lot, very left-wing, have been doing this for the last like five to 600 years. And that means that, you know, all of the problems that are left, I mean, there are still a lot of problems that are left are are really, you know, intractable and hard to solve, either for political economy reasons or technical or whatever. But it's generally smart people have been trying to solve these problems for a very long time, and they are unsolved. And so I think that means that you need to have a little bit of 
you know, humility when you approach them. There was someone who was a lot like you five years ago, and he probably wasn't an idiot. So, you know, if you're, if you think they are, you're probably like missing something. Uh, and you need to have a really good theory of the case for why you're going to be able to succeed where they fail. And sometimes there is, you know, the world is changing, you know, there's technology, there's the internet, there's all kinds of stuff, but I think you need to think really carefully about it. And it's just something I try to keep in mind. And I guess you could call that humility. Right. And one theory of the case, a common theory of the case is, well, I believe it more strongly and I will fight harder. And that probably wasn't the case. Yeah, that one, that one's probably not true. You know, it turns out there were plenty of, plenty of people who, you know, really, really wanted to change things. I mean, this gets, I mean, to move a little bit more into, into politics, you know, like I, I personally identify as a socialist, as a very left, left-wing guy, but you know, it's something I, I try to come to terms with is just that, you know, there have been a, a bunch of very left-wing people who had very strong ideological convictions, you know, coming out, who want to change the world and, and thrown themselves at the problem. And, you know, this has been happening for like 150 years now. And so I think you have to study, I think, all of these people before you who have tried and failed and come into it with this idea that actually a lot of the choices they made probably made sense and probably were the right thing to do. Uh, and, you know, in particular, I think, you know, when you look at the post-war history of social democrats in Europe, you realize they really run into a lot of these same problems that are relevant in the U.S., where it turns out people really don't like tax increases. It turns out that there are a lot of voters who are culturally conservative, and there are a lot of really hard trade-offs, and you have to juggle them. And um, it's important to know that. It helps inform, you know, how you should look at things now. Because, you know, they did accomplish a lot of things. You know, they built a big welfare state. They made a lot of people better off. But it turns out that doing all of these things involves a bunch of hard, unpleasant trade-offs, even if you come into it, like, believing things really strongly. David Shore is a researcher and a consultant for Democratic politicians. That's why he says, we, us, and our, when speaking of that side. You could follow him on Twitter at David S-H-O-R. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. The Georgia Senate races are to be decided tonight. The New York Times is bringing back the needle. Oh, we've all seen the needle and the damage done. Damage done. Okay, it's an obvious music cue, but I'm going to indulge it because it's a great song and an apt metaphor. I mean, if there's a cowgirl and she's in the sand, what are you not going to play or think of the cowgirl in the sand? Another, uh, another example, someone's chasing waterfalls. You don't think they should do that. I say don't twist yourself into contortions to avoid the obvious. So the needle is the New York Times visual representation of a candidate's chances in a particular election. And some people hate the needle because they think of, yes, the damage done. Now, what's the damage? Well, it's that the needle is sometimes inaccurate, like when it said that Biden would lose Georgia in 2020. Or, and this is more trauma-inducing, when the needle is accurate, like when it said Trump would win the election in 2016. Neil Young was wrong. It is not only love that can break your heart. It was Donald Trump getting elected. And I hope Mr. Young will remember, etc., etc. I think the needle is kind of stupid because it takes a general premise, right? Meaning that general, that one candidate or another is slightly more or slightly less or greatly more or less expected to win. And then it assigns an impossible exactitude with it. 
And then the New York Times, and this is the annoying part, where the needle truthers out there, I call them the needlers, the needlers needlessly lead us into an argument. No, that's not the, what the needle's supposed to do. You're not understanding the needle. That's not what the needle is saying. You can't read needle. Sure. Then they say, the needle's really, it's really just there to indicate a range. Sure. That's what needles are known for how they come to a wide, splayed-out range, which is why we use needles to mash potatoes or flip pancakes or knead dough, obviously where the word needle comes from. If we wanted a range, the New York Times would be sponsoring the rake or the finishing trowel or even the scythe. Both conveys a range and finality. The annoying thing about the needle is exactly that, the faux precision. And I have thought of a good analogy. If you're a football phobe, you might hate it, but work with me here. If you've ever even watched a football game, there always comes that moment when the ball carrier is stopped by the defense, he's struggling to get a first down, and he's stopped somewhere near, but maybe not exactly at what would be the first down marker, and the referee eyeballs, looks at where the referee is. He does so at a distance, and he estimates, okay, the ball carrier's forward progress is stopped. This is the football rule. The guy isn't always tackled. Sometimes they're, you know, held up by a defender, and he went forward, then he's pushed back, so you're supposed to find the spot where he went forward the most, his forward progress. And the referee makes a subjective judgment about where the ball stopped moving forward. And then he tries to remember the point of subjective judgment and picture the ball at the moment it is stopped, runs over, if it is of course now dealing with a memory of the past, and then taking the ball from somewhere in midair and putting it on the ground. So there's a little bit of movement there as well. And sometimes you see the ref putting the ball on the ground and then after he puts the ball on the ground where he wants to go, he just moves it like an inch this way or that way. It's like when I set the microwave to 301 or 431 because I'm giving myself a little piece of flair. You know, I have the insight about how these things are done. And I don't, I don't get mad at any of this. Not so far. Because there is nothing we could do about the vagaries of estimation or the impermanence of memory. And I don't begrudge anyone in the officiating crew having to do their best to determine where the ball should be. Seems like a hard job. I guess they do it well. But it's clearly just an estimate, an estimate shaped by human frailty. Can we admit that? We cannot. Because at this next moment, what happens is the thing that so vexes me. It's that two guys running from the sidelines with a set of chains attached to sticks to precisely measure to a supposedly highly calibrated degree this entire exercise in guessing and estimating and futzing around with an oblong ball as seen by one's eye, as recalled by one's brain, as placed on a field. And oh, by the way, the chains, this is a very 1910s kind of version of exact, but there it is. And it is the layering of supposed scientific exactitude atop a sloppy pile of, I don't know, that's what it looks like to me. That's what I find so insulting. And that's the needle. It's at Trump plus 2%. No, wait, 10% more vote is in. It's now at Biden 0.4%. Oh, now we're suspending it. That's how Georgia went during the presidential election. Oh, no, 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 no. Here's the problem. The problem is 
you don't get the needle because maybe we didn't spend enough time explaining how you don't get the needle, which is why the New York Times wrote, or at least Needlemeister Nate Cohen, who's great. He's really great in his job. But he wrote this article, co-wrote this article a couple years ago. The needle's back. Maybe this time it will really be wrong. Subhead. And yes, it could be wrong or wrong in quotes. And in the article, the word wrong appears 15 times, eight times in quotes and seven times out of quotes because the New York Times doesn't think that we understand the fine nuances of their precise tool that's supposed to be not really precise because maybe we don't understand how tools work or this particular tools that they're the best estimates of the information that we have at any given time. Who needs that? Who needs any of this? The New York Times is so convinced that we don't understand what it means to be wrong that they don't think they can ever be wrong. It's like they're arguing with their readers over a feature that doesn't mean anything, will be obviated in a day's time, doesn't really serve a news purpose. I mean, maybe it's predictive, maybe it's not, frustrates readers, and might actually have a negative value in terms of setting incorrect expectations before the final vote is tallied. I like information. I like data. I like tools. I think the needle's a pretty good tool. I wouldn't mind if some guy out there on the internet invented a needle and it worked as well as the New York Times needle, and I would check it out and not put too much stock in it. I don't think the needle's a horror. I don't think the needle's a help. I do think it epitomizes an attitude about elections that they are a sport, but that the audience, the New York Times audience, thinks of them maybe as a game, but sort of a life or death game. It's very discordant with everything else that the serious and seemingly august institution of the New York Times is trying to convey. But blessedly, the lack of, presence of, or prominence of the needle will be subsumed soon enough by the actual result, which will be analogous to a needle because it will either be a shot in the arm or a spike right through the eye. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces the gist. She says, if someone literally does leave the cake out in the rain... There's no reason to sidestep MacArthur Park. Shana Roth produces the gist. She believes that if your mama did, in fact, tell you to knock someone out, well, let that fact be known. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast, who thinks that if you, in fact, like pina coladas and walks in the rain, if you like pina coladas, no reason to escape from that. That notion, the gist. Look. If the naturally occurring interjection upon realizing that I wish you were my lover was, geez, or what do you know, or golly, or who'd have thunk I wish I were your lover, then I don't need to play a song about that. But if my pining for you as my lover were preceded by the exact exclamation, damn, damn. well, then I say lean into the full subject of glory of this sentiment. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.